This is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. In Warbreaker, author Brandon Sanderson has created a world of magic and color, of two sisters trying to sort out their destinies, and mysterious characters. Additionally, he has the daunting task of finishing the Wheel of Time series Robert Jordan made so famous. Here's Brandon Sanderson. This sounds uh, like, like an interesting, uh, you know, potential series here. I just, I like the fact that this, it's a story of two sisters, and I think that's a good way to begin. How did this story originate for you? Um, it was actually because I was reading around in a lot of mythology, looking at some of the classical concepts of inspired a lot of fantasy writers over the years. One of the things I like to do is I like to, I like to write a little bit of postmodern fantasy, so to speak. Um, I like to. To, to look at what's been done before and see if I can play with it, if I can, if I can make it my own, if I can add something to the genre. Um, my Mistborn series, for instance, was about what if the Dark Lord that was always, you know, what the young plucky hero went and failed and the Dark Lord won, um, that, that sort of thing. Um, and with this, I was looking at some of the, the classic fairy tales of the, um, of the role reversal, um, the prince and the pauper type of ideas, the, the two sisters, the, um, that um, that get thrown into situations contrary to what their skill set would originally prepare them to, to deal with. And I wanted to see if I could approach this in a realistic way and, um, and create an epic fantasy that had its roots back in some of these ancient stories. More sci-fi talk with Tony Teato in a moment. Now, in creating the personalities of the sisters, where did you, uh, where did you use for inspiration? Um, I, I use my own family, to be perfectly honest. I, um, I, I I do that a lot. Um, I, I've often made a study of um, how someone's birth order does tend to influence the way they act. And I'm, I'm the oldest in my family, and uh, my wife is the oldest in her family of, um, of four or five kids, each of us. I've noticed that a lot of times a first child will act a certain way and a last child will act, act a certain way. And I wanted to, to play with that concept. And so I was trying to build – whenever you're building a character – at least for me, you, you, you start with, a, with an archetype, and then you try to make it real. Um, archetypes exist because they, they describe real things, um, but archetypes are also cliched. I started with the archetype of, the, of the, the eldest child who does what she's supposed to, has always been you know, trained for this great purpose and a lot of expectations on her, and then on the youngest child, who's a, a little bit... Um, a little bit antiphonal, you know, she hasn't had to, it's not been as important that she pay attention to all of her lessons. Um, she's been, you know, like my little sister, allowed to get away with a lot that the, the older siblings weren't allowed to, to get away with and things like this. And, and these mixed with their natural personalities taken and extrapolated to make them real people. Um, it, it, it was the foundation of the story. It's these, these two people put in roles opposite of what they, they, they'd planned for. I mean, the, the, the plot of the story is one of the sisters is being prepared all her life um, to go and be part of this arranged political marriage, um, specifically with the kingdom's enemies. They're the, the most more powerful um, kingdom. The smaller king's opinion are, are heretics or blasphemers who, who worship these, these gods who are not really gods in their opinion. The older sister, Ravina has been betrothed since before her birth to marry the god king um, of, of this, this other empire. The younger sister, Siri, um, has been, isn't even a backup. She's a fourth child, so she's, 
she's not really, you know, the second the um, second child prepared just in case um, if something were to happen to Vivina. But the the fourth child wasn't wasn't important to them, and she was allowed to just relax and um, and be herself. And um, at the dawn of the book, for reasons involved in the story and things like this, the father sends the youngest child instead of the oldest child and um, throws them in kind, kind of a role reversal, where Ravina feels that she's now useless, um, and Siri suddenly has to marry this, this terrible god king um, that her people have feared all this time. Very interesting. Part of the essence of the story is the biochromatic magic, which is based on breath. Kind of describe where that, you know, where that came from. Magic is one of the things I love to, to do in my books. And I really like to, to play with the concept of magic as it relates to science. Um, and, and for magic, I'm also usually digging in, in history, either looking at science textbooks um, from, or, or scientific writings from previous days, or looking at um, superstition and myth. In a lot of, um, of both science and sort of superstitious writing in the past, you find this sense that if something is similar to something else, then it gives you power over them, right? This is the voodoo doll concept. You find a lot of uh, talking about inanimate objects having sentience or gaining sentience to the, to the practice of magic. Um, that was bouncing around in my head, um, mixed with this idea of, of color, um, which became a big part of the magic system as well. It's kind of the, the, the second um, third of the magic system. The, the second chunk of it is this concept of, of color as a representation of life. When, when a person dies, the color bleeds away out of them. They become less colorful in a lot of ways because of the blood draining and things like this. When a plant dies, green seeps away and is replaced with brown. Color is, I think, a metaphor in, in a lot of our minds for life, just a, a subconscious thing. Um, and then that finally mixed with the idea of breath. Um, I, I wanted for a while to find a way to, to have magic that was passed from person to person in a non-standard way. Uh, we tend to fall back on the, the, the pretty standard ways of gaining magic. Either you're born with it um, or through intense study you learn it. These are the, the two tropes that come up in fantasy quite often. I wanted to try something different. I wanted, I wanted a magic that felt different. And so um, I started playing with the concept of a magic that everybody was born with a, a, a certain amount of it, a, a tiny smidge of it, um, this life sense, whatever it is inside of us that, that allows a person to, to notice when someone's watching them, for instance, is something that makes you feel connected to, to the rest of humankind. And just hypothesize a, that's a little dribble of magic inside of you that in this world, through, through certain means, you can take and give to someone else. It doesn't kill you to give it away. It uh, makes you a little less, um, they call it in the book, becoming a drab, a little less aware of the world around you, less connected. The color of your, your skin and your, um, your eyes fades just a little bit once you do it. And then someone else has twice as much. We call this, they call this the breath. They have twice as much breath, um, biochromatic, twice as much color, um, which if you gather enough of it, you can start doing some interesting things like granting life to objects, giving them, giving them the ability to move on their own for a little bit of time to obey commands, this sort of thing. For me, in a magic system, there are a lot of different ways that things happen, a lot of, um, a lot of different, let me rephrase that, a lot of different um, pieces 
Um, it's it's never just one thing that makes me want to write a magic system. It's always a whole bunch of things mixing together with with science and with superstition uh, coming together to try and create something that feels like a hybrid between the two. Now, did you research uh, you know the scientific aspects of it in addition to the mythology too? Yeah. I mean, with this one, not as much as the Mistborn Magic, where I was using vectors and things like this. Um, with Warbreaker, it was mostly that kind of idea of the law of the similar, um, where things that are like one another are, are, have power over one another. Um, bringing things to life, there's really not as much sense of, of, of study and research you can do. Um, the closest we've been able to come is, you know, some of these AI and robotics and things like this. Sure. Um, mostly, I was I was reading historical works and looking at what people really believed, um, which is always fascinating to me. You know, this, the the idea of spontaneous generation, which doesn't show up in this book, but that's one of the things that's always fascinated me that people believed if you left out meat um, to rot that flies would be born from it. Not that flies would lay their eggs and those eggs would hatch other flies, but that it, meat would just spontaneously generate flies. Or the concept in this, where, you know, if you can create something that uses a piece of someone's essence, if you can get one of their hairs or their fingernails and build a doll out of it, that doll will have some power over the person that what you do to the doll will happen to them. These sorts of concepts were, were what was driving me to create the magic system. Vasher is the warbreaker. As the series move on, will we will we know more and more about him as it? Well, the the funny thing about that is I got I've got a great story for that. Um, who the Warbreaker is is actually one of the small secrets in the book. Um, uh -huh. um, it's not something that I intended to. You know, I mean, it's not a huge revelation. You know, Vasher's personality. This character is um is is his motivations are not certain as you're reading the the book. Why is he doing what he's doing? What does he want? all of this stuff. My editor wrote up the synopsis that ended up on the book. It actually wasn't supposed to end up on the book. It was supposed to end up in the catalog copy, where you're a little bit more explicit um, with catalog copy for uh, people who are going to be selling the book um, at bookstores and things so they can, they can get a little bit more about it. You usually give a few spoilers, um, and he submitted a different co copy to end up on the book. Um, they got switched somehow. We didn't notice the switch until it was too late to change it. And so now um, the synopsis ends up giving away more than I would want it to give away. Um, this book, I plan to be a two-book series, um, which I don't really honestly know when I'll be able to write the second book. The Wheel of Time um, is, is demanding a lot of time from me, um, and rightly so, and I, I feel it needs to get all the focus I can give it, yeah. which means that the second Warbreaker book probably won't happen for a few years. Um, this, this, the first volume is self-contained. Um, I, I wrote it to be um, a standalone fantasy epic. There is more I want to do in this world. There are a few of the characters may continue on, but this wraps up its own story. So if you read this, you, you find out quite a bit. Um, there are some holes. There are some secrets. Um, and those are the sorts of things I, I plan to, to reveal in the sequel, when and if I can ever write it. Warbreaker, writing standalones like this is, is mostly, I do projects like this because I really want to. The series actually tend to sell a little bit better, um, but I like doing both. I like jumping back and forth. And so once I finished the trilogy, I wanted to do a standalone, and that's, that's where this came from. Sci-Fi Talk returns in a moment. Now, you mentioned uh, The Wheel of Time. As far as what was left for you, was it similar to what 
maybe not as extensive, but was it similar to what Frank Herbert left for Kevin J. Anderson and Brian Herbert when they were doing the Dune books, like any kind of notes or anything like that? Well, I, you know, I don't know what, um, what Brian and Kevin had for certain. Um, with me, um, what we've got are we've got, um, we've got things that run the whole gambit. Um, there are notes. There are completed scenes that he wrote. Um, there are dictations where during the, the last days of his life, he, he knew that the end was coming, and he um, gathered people around with a tape recorder and began telling them and sh- telling them about scenes in the book and what should happen to characters and things like this. And there are pages and pages of dictations like that, um, mixed with notes written for himself, mixed with an outline created um, kind of for whoever ended up finishing the book, uh, mixed with it's just all over the place. He did want this book to be written, and he did actively work before he passed away to gather everything together so that someone could write it. Right. So out of all of that, I mean, you have to kind of navigate through all that. Did you... Yeah, it's a fascinating process, actually. It's been really interesting. Um, there's, you know, it's it's not just connecting the dots that are just writing and expanding an outline they left behind, um, which to be to have some to have creative influence which as a writer i really really it, it makes the project much more exciting to me um but there's enough direction and enough going on that i don't have to extrapolate too far on a lot of things i mean he wrote the the last two scenes of the of, of the the wheel of time himself left them behind um so and those will those will go into the book practically unchanged um into the final volume in in between, I've got all sorts of interesting things, like places where he, he described two different scenes that are so mutually exclusive and said, I'm going to do one of these things. I'll either do this or I'll do this. I haven't decided yet. Where I have to look at it and say, okay, what do I think should happen? Um, in other places, there'll be a few paragraphs that will say, I, we need to accomplish this. We need this to happen. But he doesn't say how to do it. Um, it's kind of a make this happen, go for it sort of thing. In other places, he... Certain characters he just left alone. He didn't have time to to talk about, and there's a a, a lot of um, extrapolation I get to do, and getting them from point A to point B because he has point B written out, and he has a point A at the end of Knife of Dreams or the the book of Knife of Dreams written out. That makes us with entire scenes that he's just written that we can put in and have and not change very much at all. Um, and other places where he's got a, a detailed outline of what this character does all the way from, you know, spanning between Knife of Dreams and, and the, la- the final battle. So um, it, it's all over the place. It's, what I'm doing is part writing a book, part uh, writing from an outline, and part uh, like archaeologist reconstructing a, um, a vase that had shattered or something like that. Um, with the estate, honestly, um, uh, when the, the state, when we talk about the estate, it's really Harriet. Harriet, um, who was Harriet McDougall, who was Robert Jordan's wife, um, and his editor for many years. Um, in fact, she she's been editing the books from the beginning. She was one of Tor's most influential editors of all time. She edited Ender's Game, for instance, and things like this before she even met Robert Jordan. Um, and so she's a she's a she's a pretty big deal um, in and of herself, and had a lot of influence on these books. When Jim, Robert Jordan, passed away, before he passed away, he had asked her to find somebody to complete the book. And I've said it before, talking to people who knew her at the time, it looked, she kind of felt like that was a dying request. A lot of people say she, she didn't seem like she could rest until she knew the book was in someone's hands. But she was also going through the grieving purpose, um, 
Um, I can't remember what that word is I want to say. She's going through the grieving process, and she so what she searched out and found through through various means you can you can read about it on the internet i've talked about it a lot how, how i ended up being chosen um completely unexpectedly i didn't know that this was happening um she was looking for someone that she could give all of this stuff to and say go for it um as an editor what she wants to do she wants to see a finished product which she can then offer criticism and editing of if she doesn't have a finished product then you know the editor's job is, is mostly focused on here's what we have let's make this good manuscript a fantastic manuscript exactly. if that makes any sense and so exactly. she really just gave it all to me and said Brandon do your best you know run outlines by me when you outline things show me you know show me some chapters as you're working on it but mostly we're giving you complete control over this to write the first draft and then we'll um, we'll tell you yes or no if you've done it right if you've done it wrong you go back and you'll try it again. If you've done it right, then we'll move forward. Partially, it was like she was looking for a project manager. They've been very non-strict with me. Um, they have not, I mean, she, she's worked with a lot of authors. She knows how authors work. She knows how the creative process works. And she knows that the more you kind of constrict an artist, the less it tends to, to come out well. You know, she's been hands-on. She's been part of the process, but she's allowed me to really try anything I want to try, do anything I want to do. And if I can make the writing work, so the, the writing stands on its own, its own improves what I wanted to do, then it's fine. Now, is, uh, when, is the, uh, when is this going to be all finished? We were hoping, <laughs> I, was, I really hoped to be able to finish it um, writing during one year's time. The amount of notes, the amount of story that has to go on. Robert Jordan was famous for saying before he passed away that he planned this last book to be so big that you'd have to wheel it out of, a, out of a, um, this bookstore on a cart. Um, he was planning for this enormous book, and he already wrote enormous books. Um, and I, I know the publisher was, was quite scared every time he said that because there are certain binding restrictions, which, yeah, you can, you can start binding really big, big books like that. They start costing a lot. And the text starts getting really, really small. And the editing process becomes a nightmare. I wrote hard last year as much, you know, I, I, I put a lot into this. And after about uh, 14 months of writing, um, I was only through about halfway of the notes. And Tor called and ha talked to Harriet, and she talked to me. And together they decided with, um, that the best thing to do was to split the book up and get something out this year. Um, giving me that requirement, I then went and decided how to best split the book so that we would have a complete story rather than just stopping in the middle of one. Um, and, and that was really all up to me. How are we going to cut this? Um, I, I did make a few pitches on what we should do to Harriet and um, told her what I think we thought we should do, and she said yes, and then I went and did it. And there were pr pretty good break points already built into the story just because I had to break it up in my head in order to approach something this huge. I'm about halfway done with the well, – I'm, I'm, I'm actually about two-thirds of the way done now. Um, two-thirds of the way done with the second of the three volumes that they have decided to split it into. Wow, um, so the, the first volume will be out November. Yep, November 3rd. Um, and then the second volume should be out next fall. Um, and the third volume, the fall after that, um, assuming I'm able to get this – get the pieces written and I'm satisfied with them in time. Now, is there a possibility that you might go beyond uh, this? I have counseled Harriet and I think a lot of the, the fans are behind on this, that we, we don't want this to go on forever. Right. Um, I, you know, 
Um, I, I don't want to be exploiting Robert Jordan's legacy for the rest of my life, so to speak, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, he, and he was very uncomfortable with people writing in, in his world. He, he'd expressed, min, you know, years before he passed away, um, if pe- people asked him what would happen if he, if he died before the series was done, he'd say, well, you'll never find the ending because I'm, I'm leaving instructions to, you know, burn all my notes and reformat all my hard drives. Um, and he said it jokingly. And when the time actually came around, he, he actually prepared notes for me to work on. So, but that sense that he's talking about is that se- I, I understand that sense, you know, and I respect it as an author. I, I don't know that I would want people writing in my world, particularly, you know, keeping characters alive, kind of like puppets long after their life is gone and things like this. And so I don't think it would be appropriate to continue the wheel of time for a great long time. Now, that said, there, Robert Jordan did sign contracts um, on a couple of more pieces of the Wheel of Time. He did promise fans and, and tour two more prequel volumes. He had written one um, called New Spring, um, kind of a shorter. Um, it was only 150,000 words as opposed to his, his standard three, 300, 350. So it's about a half-length book. And he'd, he'd promised two more books like that um, and even told people what they would be about. And then he promised a trilogy um, dealing with um, the Shan Chan Empire. And so those five books, um, he actually, there are contracts for some of those and things like this. And, um, and Harriet is still deciding whether or not to do those five books. Yeah, um, I, I have told her if she asks, if she, if she decides to have them done and asks me that I will indeed work on them because, and, and I'll work on them happily um, because it, the decision is really hers. The Wheel of Time, I'm, I'm part of now, and it'd be very hard for me to, to let go um, and have, have someone else do it. Um, my counsel has been to let it lie, um, and, and I've mentioned beyond those, those five books, um, if, if she decides to do any more than that, that, that I would say no. Um, that I, I just, that I, I, he had promised those books to fans so I can see the legitimacy of doing them, and I'll admit a lot of curiosity on my part finding you know, wanting those stories to be told and to be part of those stories. But the other bit of counsel I've given her is to wait. Um, let Wheel of Time, you know, let the, the main sequence of books be done and then get that, focus everything on that. And then when we get done, if she makes the decision she wants to do the others, that we can sit down and spend a few years making sure that we've got them in a really good state before we release them. So, so I, you might see those books. Um, but, but, you know, that's kind of a a long, complicated answer where I give lots of caveats. My goal is not to, um, to finish this and then go to tour and pitch the next part of the wheel of time and then finish that and go to tour and pitch the next part of the wheel of time or anything like that. I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of these books and I think they should end. What's interesting is, uh, there's a lot of interest lately on it. I've just actually seen a graphic novel based on the wheel of time. Yep. That's been really cool. Yep. Robert Jordan was involved in making that happen before he passed away. Yeah. Um, and he really liked the, the company that is doing it, um, was, was, was friends with, um, members of the company. And this is a, a very much Robert Jordan sanctioned product project and one that he was very excited about. And then even a motion picture, it looks like is going yeah. to happen. That was something that was also set in motion before he passed away that he, um, that he signed off on. And, uh, we're very cautiously optimistic. You know, Hollywood is always a scary place, um, <laughs> for authors losing creative control and seeing what they do. 
at the same time, if we end up with fantastic films like the Lord of the Rings films turned out to be, or, you know, many of the Harry Potter films actually yeah. turned out very well. I love sure the has. third movie. It can happen. Mm-hmm. We're cautiously optimistic. I'm not having a whole lot to do with that. More, it's... um. It's being involved with some of the, the experts in the fan community and some of Robert Jordan's assistants. Um, I probably will be able to see a script and offer feedback on it once the first script is done. They're in the, the script writing stage, but I don't know a whole lot about the, the, the film project right now. Well, you know, Warbreaker sounds like a, a really interesting series. Uh, it, it's, uh, I'm, I'm glad it's, it's, it does end uh, and doesn't yeah, leave yeah. you hanging because we don't want to wait a few years for the. Yeah, it is, and I, I love the, the, I love the epic fantasy standalone. Yeah. Um, there are things you can do with that type of story that you can't with a series. Now, I, I really like series too, and that's why I bounce back and forth between them. But yeah, I think um, Warbreaker, it's, it's, it's getting harder and harder for me to describe my books to people. I mean, we've talked about the two sisters, but that's kind of the first few chapters, and then it goes crazy from there. And we haven't even talked about Light Song, who is um, a god who doesn't believe in his own religion, um, and and some of these wacky things that are happening. So um, it it's, I guess it's an epic fantasy about role reversals um, told in one volume. Do you think because of the popularity of Lord of the Rings uh, movies, and which again revitalized the books? Uh, that fantasy is is more mainstream now than ever. Yeah, I think it is actually more mainstream. Um, Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter helped mainstream it. Um, in fact, I think you know science fiction has had a steady mainstreaming going on for many years. It's, yes. That's um, that you can see um, with the rising generation playing the video games and things like this. It's, the big films of all time, if you look at them, they tend to be either historicals or fantasy science fictions, That's true. Um, which, which is kind of interesting to notice. I think there's something inside of all of us that, that mainstream, that, that understands fantasy. I mean, the Disney films are fantasies. Um, yes. it's, it's very mainstream, except at the same time, the reading of the fantasy novels is not quite as mainstream, and I don't know if it ever will be as mainstream, um, for the simple reason of, of what we call the learning curve. Um, a fantasy book, when you pick it up, is filled with new names, new terms, um, and all these things that it makes it kind of difficult to start reading. There's there's a barrier of entry to a fantasy novel that doesn't exist as much in a film where you've got the visual cues and these sorts of things going along with it. And uh, fantasy novels are tough to read, which is why we like them. Um, being thrown into a lake, you know, not knowing how to swim, so to speak, and having to figure it all out in the first chapters or across the entire length of the book. That's why, why we fantasy readers read fantasy in part for, among other reasons, hopefully depth of character um, and um, an interestingness of world and things like this. But we, we like that concept um, of, of the learning curve. And so, you know, I, I think that more people, if they would try fantasy and, and dig into them, would find that they really, really love the process. But I think that barrier of entry will keep away some of the people who would prefer to read a book where they don't have to, to go through that at the beginning. Now, you mentioned you have uh, your own podcast. Why don't you, you know, kind of... Uh... Um, I do a podcast called Writing Excuses, <laughs> writingexcuses.com, um, and it's actually a very fast-paced, um, kind of a crossfire format, um, like you see with those news programs and things, but focused on writing. Okay. Um, it's me and um, Dan Wells, who's a horror writer, writes young adult horror book. Howard Taylor, who writes the comic book or the comic strip Schlock Mercenary. It's a popular online webcomic. Um, I suppose there aren't any other type of webcomic, but um, 
we introduce a topic, a writing topic, um, say, you know, let's writing sympathetic characters. And then for 15 minutes, I fire questions at the other two and address them myself. And we keep it snappy, fast paced, um, writing oriented. Um, I started doing it because while I like a lot of podcasts that I listen to, a lot of them have a tendency to ramble. Um, and you know, you'll sit there and they'll say, we're going to talk about this today. And then an hour and a half later, they finally start talking about the topic after you've heard about, you know, what they've thought about the sports world or the politics world or what Jim had for pizza last night or, you know, things like that. You finally get to the topic. I wanted one that was quick, snappy and to the point. Um, and so our tagline is actually 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and we're not that smart. Yeah. Um, and so, and we use, we really do keep it to that and it is on topic. So if you're interested in writing, give it a listen. And uh, it's available in iTunes, I would assume. It's available in iTunes right. or through listening on an in um, browser, um, you know, just clicking on your browser and pushing play at writing excuses or um, that we do have CDs that you can just pick up for the of the whole archive. Well, I really want to thank you uh, for talking to me. It's been fun. I'm glad we finally connected. Thank you for your interest and, sure. and your patience with me. Thanks for being a subscriber and listening to Sci-Fi Talk Premium. This is Tony Tolado. Take care. This is Brandon Sanderson, New York Times bestselling author of Warbreaker and uh, working on the Wheel of Time novels. You're listening to Sci-Fi.